back to Peace in Their Time, episode 76, The Generalissimo. Now that we've concluded our overview of China up to the end of 1928, I feel like it's high time to do something that I haven't done in a while. Do a biography episode. And don't worry, this won't be like the last one I did, which turned into its own miniseries. But you are getting two of them, as I'm going to be covering the early lives of both Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong. In case you're just hopping in and missed my bio episodes on Mussolini and Hitler, the intent here is not to present a complete start-to-finish accounting of the subject's entire life, but rather their early one up to the point where their own lives become dominated by the movement they either create or join up with. For example, Chang, by effectively winning the struggle for supremacy in the multi-sided war for China, became bound personally by the fate of the KMT and the nation as a whole. So today I'll be concluding his story by the time he conquers Beijing and inaugurates the Nanjing Decade. You'll still be hearing all about him next season, but as part of the national history. Next week I'll tackle Mao, and while his cutoff point of establishing the Jigongshan base camp may seem more arbitrary, it was also the point where he became the most dynamic and capable force in the CPC, and his story merged with that of the party. Hopefully these bio-eps provide a little bit of human context to the bigger names I've been throwing around, and also a glimpse into the experiences that created these exceptional historical figures. And yes, I realize that with the benefit of hindsight, it might be a little weird to give Chiang Kai-shek such equal footing with Mao, given that the latter was so much more influential over the long term. Uh, well, see the fact that China is governed by the CPC in the modern day, while the Republic of China, as envisioned by the KMT, now only governs the island of Taiwan. But, during the 20s and 30s, the KMT was by far the more important force in the lives of the average Chinese citizen, and as such, Chang was the greater figure during the period. In due course, it would all slip through his fingers, and I look forward to telling those stories. Mao, on the other hand, would have to wait a lot longer to achieve the same prominence, and came close to the brink of annihilation more than once over the years. But as the more freewheeling era of warlordism came to a close in China and settled into an uneasy network of powerful military leaders centered under the KMT banner, the CPC would become the de facto opposition to the ruling regime of China, one that would never go away and would have a major influence on future events. Major enough that the CPC's most important figure will be getting his own episode as well. But enough about formatting, let's get to know our subject for today. Chiang Kai-shek was born on October 31st, 1887, in the vicinity of Zhikou, a city in Zhejiang province right across Hengzhou Bay from Shanghai. His grandfather, Chang Yubayo, was a landholder, and while the five acres he possessed wasn't terribly large, it placed him head and shoulders above the vast majority of the community. But it wasn't in farmland that the family made their money, as Cheng's grandpa got into the salt business. The sale of salt was regulated by the Qing government, and you needed a license to sell it which was important because it was also one of the few preservatives available in those days. Being the only game in town, selling it was almost guaranteed money. Chang's father, Chang Swan, diversified his portfolio by adding wine as a good the family sold, which also required an official license. They lived above the salt-slash-wine shop, prosperous amidst grinding poverty. Chiang Kai-shek would be given several other names over his youth, as was normal, but the one that stuck was his honorific Zhexi. When Chang eventually became a lieutenant of Sun Yat-sen, Dr. Sun would call Chang by the Cantonese version of that name, Kai-shek, which also became how he styled himself as a KMT leader and was how he got recorded in Western accounts. Some modern sources prefer to go with the more correct variations of his name, but I've been sticking with Kai-shek as the overwhelming majority of sources referred to him as such. 
While the family was prosperous, he was only eight when his father died in 1896, his grandfather having passed away only two years previous to that. His old half-brother inherited the salt business, while Chang got the old house and the five acres surrounding it. So while he and his mother were certainly not left destitute, their material circumstances were a bit lessened there. And as so happens when a child loses a parental figure so early, he became fiery and rebellious, with his imperious nature and short temper beginning to manifest. His mother, though, provided a guiding hand for the wayward youth. She arranged his marriage to a local 19-year-old girl at the end of 1901, when he was only 14. The girl's name was Mao Fumei, and she moved in with Kai Shek and his mom on the little farmstead. It wasn't exactly a loving marriage. In fact, it wasn't at all a loving marriage, as she later complained that Chang beat her, and Chang, for his part, was embarrassed by his illiterate peasant of a wife. And as we'll see in a bit, it didn't last forever. Notable, though, was that their sole child together was Chang Chingkuo, who would suffer a kind of rocky relationship with his dad, but would also be consistently by his side all through Kai Shek's career. Having been born in 1887, Chang grew up amidst the final stages of the Qing dynasty's collapse. While he hardly lived in the most connected or vibrant of communities in China, news of the empire's chain of defeats were impossible to miss. The military triumphs of Japan at the expense of China had an effect on him, and he resolved to gain an education in the military, attending local academies starting in early 1903 at the age of 16. At first, Fumei went along with him, but he got tired of her and sent her back home to live with his mom. He went, not because he wanted to try his hand at saving the crumbling Qing Empire, but rather to gain the know-how in order to bring it down. In 1906, he took that ambition a step further, cutting off his pigtail haircut mandated by the Qing as a sign of subservience to them. He then informed his family he was heading to Japan not just to expand his studies, but also to get in touch with revolutionaries living abroad, plotting the destruction of the Qing. Also, it allowed him to get away from his wife. He arrived in Tokyo and took in just how modern the city was and how orderly and productive its people were. He lived among the community of Chinese students, exiles, and what have you for a time, amidst the early days of Sun Yat-sen's United League. He ran into a little problem, though, in that his education qualifications weren't really up to snuff to get into a good Japanese academy. But Chang was a driven sword and wasn't about to let his ambition go. He had a great number of deficiencies, but was also a stubborn man who was not put off by setbacks. It wasn't long after that he returned to China, this time traveling to Tianjin, the major port just to the southeast of Beijing. There, he spent a year at the Central Army School after passing a punishing entrance exam. There, he lived up to his honorific name, Kai Shek, which means upright stone, because the other students thought he had a stick up his ass and was regarded as unbearably aloof. This sentiment followed him when he passed another exam and was transferred to Tokyo along with other students for more intensive study, ostensibly to better the Qing's own military, but I highly doubt a single student in the, in the class had that idea. It was 1908 by this point, and Chang would spend the majority of his time in Japan during these years, going first through academies, and then actually being assigned to a Japanese-led combat unit for real military training. He wasn't a terribly impressive student, ranking near the bottom of his group in marks, but made an impression by how determined and driven he was. He would also enjoy the city life in Tokyo, taking in the cafes and newspapers, mainly the revolutionary Chinese ones, and also starting to indulge in a lifelong interest in prostitutes. As an aside, Chang was the best worst type of customer for a sex worker. On one hand, he was a consistent customer. On the other hand, he just kept on falling in love, or at least infatuated. 
This interest also led Chang to get a bad case of VD, most likely gonorrhea, that would haunt him his entire life, but God only knows when and where he picked that up. While serving in the Japanese military in a training capacity, Chang also got in deeper with Sun Yat-sen's movement. While he did not yet know Sun personally, uh, as Sun had been forced by Japan to leave the country for the West in 1907 at the urging of the Qing, he did have a contact named Chen Chimei. Chen hailed from Zhejiang as well, and rapidly became an older brother figure to Chang. Chen was also in deep with planning uprisings across the Yangtze Valley, and when the Double Ten Uprising got underway, he was in the thick of it. Chang, for his part, was still in Japan, but quickly made for Shanghai when word reached him. His time of schooling had come to a close. Now was the time for him to go out and do. But his time in the academies had been a useful experience. He had started his teens as a cliched, rebellious youth. Now he was a focused and honed 24-year-old. It might have been that he simply had been looking for a cause to believe in, as once he swore allegiance to Sun Yat-sen and his movement, his commitment to it remained unshakable and would dominate his life from there on out. In Shanghai, Chen assigned Chang to his first mission. He would lead a force 90 miles to the southwest and take the city of Hangzhou, the capital province of Zhejiang. The unit in question? Well, it was mostly fishermen and members of the local green and red gangs. Which leads me to a fun little digression. Something I haven't really talked about are the gangs of Shanghai, and while I absolutely do not have the time to do their stories any justice, I'll at least give you a little taste. Anti-Qing groups took many forms in many places, and oftentimes revolutionaries would form little societies. Their backgrounds were varied, and many were well-to-do, or businessmen, the respectable types. There were also more blue-collar types, and as these groups operated underground, well, they oftentimes got involved in organized crime. Uh, this was going to be a recurring feature of the KMT, as not just Chang, but most everybody else at a high level was going to be involved in the Chinese underworld in some way. Heck, even Sun Yat-sen was involved with the triads down in Guangzhou, who, by the way, were very much an anti-Qing group at the time. Long-term, it was seen as useful, as that element provided intelligence, sources of funding during leading times, and could sometimes help keep communities in good order. Uh, they could also be corrupting influences and would later be used to root out the communists once they were marked out to be purged. Organized crime in China in those days was much like in the West, with local rackets seeking to get a cut of economic activity and squeezing out those who would deny them their influence, such as, you know, the reforming communists. Anyway, Chang and his little band headed for Hangzhou. You're probably wondering how such a motley force could take a provincial capital even in the last chaotic days of the Qing, but good news, they didn't have to. Local garrison mutinied when they arrived and there wasn't a fight at all. Cheng settled into the city and was instructed to basically sit tight and keep his unit together as best as possible while the nation was secured. It wasn't terribly important, it wasn't glorious, but Cheng was a good soldier and did as he was told. A character trait he demonstrated again at the very end of the year, when Chen had one of his rivals assassinated for daring to try and take the Zhejiang governorship for himself. Chang stepped forward to take responsibility for the killing, although he was still at such a low level that scarcely anybody paid attention to what he said. Nice thought, though, and demonstrated to the proto-KMT he was reliable. The immediate time after the revolution was otherwise boring, and Chang mostly spent his time whoring, starting fights with anyone that looked at him sideways, and discussing the future with the handful of people, like Chen, that actually saw him as useful. The news coming out of Beijing, though, did provide cause for alarm for both him and Chen. Both men watched as soon allowed Yuan Shikai to take power and foresaw Yuan's grasping for power. 
They left the country for Japan soon after Soon formed the KMT officially, and Yuan assumed the presidency. Chang even took his favorite prostitute with him, but definitely not his wife Fumei. They hung out in Japan until Soon launched the Second Revolution in July 1913, when they returned to Shanghai. As you might recall, the Shanghai Uprising didn't go well. They tried to link back up with the Green Gang, but Yuan had that big pile of foreign loan money and had bought the group off. Plus, the Greens were one of those groups who were anti-Qing and not a whole lot else, so it was decided that incurring Yuan's wrath uh, just wasn't worth it. Their efforts to take the city arsenal failed, and they fled right back to Japan. Chen was high up enough to get a kill order by Yuan's government. Chang still hadn't earned enough notoriety for that distinction. It was in Japan that Soon's ideology took a sharper edge, as he demanded absolute loyalty from his followers, and devised that a period of military rule would be needed in order to educate the Chinese on how to participate in democracy that would follow later. Recall back in episode 70 when I talked about the KMT ideology and their three-step plan to fix China. In December 1913, Cheng finally made his breakthrough in the party and met Sun Yat-sen. The good doctor was appreciative of Chang's loyalty and utilized him as a covert envoy, sending him back to China on missions to Shanghai and Manchuria. Not that anything came of those missions, but Chang's reliability was noted. By 1915, Chang and Chen were operating in the Shanghai underground, trying to organize resistance cells and plotting to assassinate local officials. They hid out in the French quarter of the city, away from the military rule of Yuan Shikai, and maintained friendly relations with the Green Gang, despite that group's inaction in the Second Revolution. Their work, basically that of political gangsters, was terribly dangerous, and Chen was gunned down in his office in early 1915. While Cheng mourned the loss of his mentor and effective patron, it did give him more of an opening to lead himself. These years were lean ones, though, for both Chang and the KMT as a whole. They had no open base from which to grow their movement, and even after Yuan died in 1916, their fortunes did not improve. Soon involved himself with the early coalition of southern warlords, but that ended when they grew tired of his pretensions of leadership. Late 1920, though, finally brought a genuine opportunity to get back into the struggle for the nation when Chen Jiangming, the leader of the Guangdong province's army, invited Soon to set up a rival counter-government to the chaos unfolding in the north. Plus, the Guangxi clique, an alliance of warlords one province over, had taken much of Guangdong from Chen, so he was looking for some support in taking it back. Cheng was given a position in the army of Guangdong, although he jeopardized this over and over again, as his explosive temper constantly got the better of him. It got to be such an embarrassment that soon pulled him aside to berate him. Cheng was a competent soldier and a strong leader, but he had no patience for bad performance and would tear down a subordinate that displeased him, which was not the best way to go about command in that environment, given that many of the troops in the warlord armies were of pretty terrible quality, and that was just the way things were at the time. To Soon, Chang was indispensable due to his military education and command abilities, but utterly self-destructive who alienated his subordinates. Chang understood this, but couldn't control himself. His diary contains entries spread across decades, where he lists his own shortcomings as things to be overcome, his temper and disagreeable nature chief amongst them. He never did overcome them, though, and would cause him trouble his entire life. For the next several years, Chang would be campaigning in the south on behalf of Soon and the allied Guangdong army. However, just as the conflict with the Guangxi reached a climax with their last gasp invasion of Guangdong in May 1921, Chang was away back home. His mother, Wang Kaiyu, 
had passed away, and he was taking time away to reflect on his life. His mother had been the primary champion of his marriage to Feme, and with the former gone, it was time for the latter to be detached. He quickly divorced Fume and arranged a marriage with a local girl named Chen Jiru. She was a girl he had developed one of his impulsive crushes on, and their relationship was a little ambiguous. To her, they were married. To Chang, she was merely an official concubine, which was kind of a consort that didn't have the same weight as a full marriage. She would also be the second person in a relationship with Chang, as a woman named Yao Yecheng had also been living as his concubine for a number of years already. While back home, he would consider his own character and decide what he needed to do to bring success to himself and the movement he had joined himself to. In an outwardly facing show of maturity, he ceased drinking, began eating simply, and wore only a simple, unadorned uniform. Even if he could never overcome all of his bad habits, he would double down on the rigid discipline he held himself to, uh, outside the aggressive nature, of course, he still kept that. The recentering of his personality wouldn't come a moment too soon, as military victory had poisoned relations between Soon and the warlord Chen. Chen staged his double cross of Soon that I covered back in episode 67, and before long, Soon was stuck aboard a gunship outside Guangzhou, frantically calling for help. Chang answered the call, and by the end of June 1922 had linked up with Soon. All through July, the southern warlords from Yunnan and Guizhou, plus the portion of the Guangdong army that remained loyal to Soon, battled with Chen's forces along the Pearl River. The allied warlords proved unequal to the task, and by August, Soon and Chang had to take their ship down to Hong Kong, where the British agreed to take them in. I know I've been covering a lot in a relative handful of minutes, but keep in perspective that Chang had been fighting for the cause of Soon's revolution for over a decade at that point, and didn't have much of anything to show for it except his own survival. A lesser man would have given up on a boss that was that luckless, but Chiang Kai-shek was one of the 20th century's most stubborn individuals. And a difference after this fresh setback was that Soon had also been busy building contacts with the Soviet Union, and at the start of 1923, as we covered in past episodes, their mutual alliance really got going. I'm not going to go over those details again, but the alliance was important for Chang as well, as Soon selected him to lead a KMT delegation to the Soviet Union. For three months, in the late summer and autumn of 1923, Chang would tour that country, inspecting Red Army bases, meeting with Communist Party apparatchiks, and meeting with government officials to try and secure firmer support. The Soviets, for their part, were enthusiastic about sending weapons and money to support the KMT. Uh, they were less enthused, though, about direct military intervention, seeing as how that would provoke the Japanese. Nor did they want to provide bases in Mongolia to the northwest of Beijing for the KMT to strike at the northern cliques. Chang also had to be cagey about his rhetoric while there as well. He stressed the KMT's anti-imperialist stance, all the while enduring the kneeling from the communists on the topic of class struggle, something that Soon had rejected so as to appeal to China as a whole. The experience there also didn't convert Chang into a communist either. He had held anti-capitalist beliefs, and certainly anti-imperialist ones, but touring Russia in the aftermath of its civil war left a bad impression on him, and only reinforced his belief that China needed Soon's leadership. While they didn't get exactly everything they wanted, the trip was a success for both the KMT and Chang. Relations were warmed with the Soviets, the alliance solidified, and the prospect of more aid secured. Chang got the glow off the mission, too, and he was considered the Russia expert once he got back, which was seen as important as the Chinese still had little experience with the new socialist government. 
which was great for Chiang, because the new Soviet advisors were immediately influential, what with Mikhail Borodin, for example, reorganizing the KMT to be more in line with a Leninist organization. This heightened profile paid off when soon put him in charge of the Wampoa Military Academy in 1923. The new school set up to train the officers of Soon's National Revolutionary Army. The Wampoa School was vital to Chang's rise and would allow him to build a network of officers and leaders that would secure his personal power in the years to come. Despite Soon's ambitions of a civilian-controlled China, those who had military power would always carry the day in the warlord era, and Chang had just been handed the keys to the new army being formed. And what he did with that army, well, you already know. This is about where Chang becomes a main figure in the miniseries I just concluded, so I'll avoid going over the big events again here. After Soon's death in March 1925, it would be the cadre of loyal officers that got him a seat at the leadership table alongside much more notable revolutionaries like Wang Jingwei. He and his officers, with the help of the Soviet advisors, would lead the NRA on its victorious northern expedition. His betrayal in April 1927 of the Communists didn't just eject a source of opposition towards him, but was also notable that it secured the loyalties of the Chinese business class. An important distinction to be made is that it secured the loyalties of the business class more to him than the KMT, meaning that proximity to Chang meant far greater rewards, which meant he attracted the best and most capable, or at least the most ambitious. This sudden connection with the powerful of Chinese society led to a fortuitous marriage alliance for Cheng. The Song family was one of the most prominent in China, whose head of household was known as Song Yaozhu. However, he was better known as Charlie Song, as he had lived in the United States for a time in his early life and converted to Christianity. Song linked up with Sun Yat-sen and became an important early ally of his, especially as Song was a prosperous businessman. It was his children, though, that had the biggest influence. His eldest daughter, Song Chiling, would defy her father and run off to marry Sun Yat-sen, who was 30 years her senior and required Sun to get a divorce as he was already married. This caused a break between Sun and Charlie Song, but the elder Song was nearing the end of his life, so it didn't really matter, as the kids continued to get involved with the KMT. The eldest son was Song Seven, or TV Song, who got an education in economics at Harvard, and after Chang's victorious northern expedition, was appointed the Minister of Finance. The second sister, Sung A. Ling, would marry a man named H. H. Kung, another Western-educated man who became an important minister in Chang's government. Both T. V. Sung and Kung will be notable figures next season. But it was the youngest daughter that was the most important for Chang. This was Sung Mei Ling who, like her other siblings, got a Western education and was destined for high-profile partners. Chang had tried to win her over back in 1922, but he had been a nobody fighting on behalf of a losing movement. In May 1927, though, he was a victorious commander who had just purged the communists, so when he asked her to marry him again, she said yes. Chang jettisoned his concubines and previous relationships and agreed to convert to Christianity to please Mei Ling. His relationship to the religion can be considered cynical as he converted for a marriage alliance, but he at least showed an interest in it and tried to adopt some of its positive messages. It was during his brief resignation in the back half of 1927 that he formalized his engagement, leaving his sleepy hometown that he was staying in to head over to Shanghai and present himself to the Sung family in late September. While Mei Ling's mother did not approve the match based on Chang's age and only having one child, a sign that he lacked virility, they moved forward and were married on December 1st. It was a glittering affair and showed just how far Chang had come. 
Mei Ling was young and beautiful, impeccably educated, and had an excellent grasp of politics. Through her family, she had access to both great wealth and important connections. She would prove to be fully Chang's partner and a critical ally, especially in his relationships with the West, as she often became his personal ambassador. There were differences, though, between them. She thought herself smarter than he was, which was definitely true. They both had bad tempers, and she thought that he hung on too long to subordinates that were liabilities, but still loyal to him. She was also far more an extrovert than he was, and tried to repair his image as a stodgy grump, something that had kind of become known to greater China. Their personality differences would create some tension, but both admired the other's passions and abilities, and shared the nationalistic mission of building a new China. And while she also had a reputation as a manipulator, if you've been paying attention to this past miniseries, you kind of have to be in order to survive at a high level in those days. It was during the start of their marriage that Chang's officers in the NRA started furiously reaching out to him to abandon the pretense of retirement and climb back into the saddle. The months of his absence hadn't produced a new leader of his caliber, and the Kuomintang was ready to take him back. He arrived in Nanjing in early 1928 with his new wife and promptly took back the reins of power. From there, he launched the NRA in the last stage of the Northern Expedition and brought the core of China for a time under his command. Chiang Kai-shek was not the best thinker or really the best person for a leadership role, but he had traits that often get underestimated that carried him through. He had that long-term patience that kept him fighting on Soon's behalf when so, so many of his supporters had fallen away after the endless string of setbacks. This meant that when the wheel finally turned and soon started to get his, Chang was right there as the dutiful servant to his master. And where others would have betrayed Soon in the cause, and where many did, Chang had that unshakable loyalty that Soon had come to depend on. It was this last part that kept Chang in the conversation, first when he worked with Chen in low-level roles, and later with Soon in the big time. He was utterly dependable in an era where betrayal and double-dealing were the norm. That being said, Soon was the last master that Chang would serve. Which leads to an interesting question in, what did Chang actually believe in? He certainly believed in building a powerful China, sure. But did he really have an ideology? During the time Soon was alive, you could say yes, though it also appeared that it was more that dogged personal loyalty to Soon more than anything else. Certainly, once in actual power, he didn't show a lot of scruples, and didn't let ideology ever be a limiting factor in his decisions. And of course, he crushed his enemies and enhanced his own personal power while making the KMT itself just another prop for his own position. In 1928, it appeared that his vision was a China under his firm political and military control, while economically the nation would be developed by a business class intermingled with the party itself which was a common enough formula and would also explain his occasional flirtations with fascism, although he never went that far. My own personal opinion is that along the way, his idea of a strong China became subsumed with his own personal standing, where the stronger his position was, the better the nation's. Which was something that would get him into a lot of trouble with leaders who didn't share that vision, and something we'll return to. But that is the early life and rise of Chiang Kai-shek and I'll be looking forward to picking back up with his eventual rule of the nation. But for now, we're going to close out China by switching over to Cheng's eventual nemesis, the CPC's very own Mao Zedong. Join me next week for that, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.